God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now to receive your word. God, I pray that you would correct us by your word and also comfort us by your word. And I pray you would make us become more convinced that everything that we read in your word today is true and good for us and wonderful. God, work all of that for your glory in our hearts now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Acts 10. Acts 10. We've made it in our study of Acts to one of the single most important events in the history of redemption. No, really. The passage we looked at last week, the final part of chapter 9, remember it brought us right to the doorstep of the gospel message going to the Gentiles, uh, to non-Jews from all nations. And here in chapter 10, we cross over that threshold for a very long time. The chosen holy people of God were just those in the nation of Israel plus whatever few Gentiles might be willing to join the Jewish people, become part of that nation. But now in Acts 10, God is beginning to form a new holy nation made up of men and women who are saved out of every nation in Christ. And so the old distinction between Jew and Greek is about to pass away. If you've read the Old Testament, you will recognize what a remarkable shift this is. And even more than that, you will especially recognize what a remarkable change enters the world in Acts 10 if you understand the deep division between Jew and Gentile that had developed by the time of the New Testament. And many Jewish traditions and religious customs were added on top of Old Testament biblical instruction, and that had built a very high wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And there's one line here in the beginning of verse 28 of Acts 10 that captures just how divided these people were. If you look there. Peter says, you yourselves know, he's talking to Gentiles, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Well, only clear intervention of God is going to be able to overturn this state of affairs. And that's what happens in our scripture passage today. And here's how God does it. He gives two visions to two men. One a Jew, the Apostle Peter, one a Gentile. And then he brings together these two men so that their visions are interpreted in light of each other. And when these two visions are put together, they add up to teach a remarkable truth about God. And when that is revealed, that becomes the launching point from which the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It will be clear because of these visions and the truths that they teach, that any man in any place can be clean in Christ. Now, the first vision is the first main point of the chapter. It's a vision of an angel. A vision of an angel. In verse 1, we meet the man who received that vision. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
So Cornelius was a man of some prominence. He was well-off and well-respected because he was a centurion. That was a rank of military leadership in the ancient Roman Empire, like a captain. Centurions were in charge of 100 soldiers. Six of those groups would come together to form a cohort. And perhaps it goes without saying that this man, Cornelius, was a Gentile. He was, after all, the leader of the Italian cohort. Now, verse 2 transition from talking about his profession and now starts describing his piety. Verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. All right, somehow this man, Cornelius, had become devoted to the God of Israel. He, He feared God, and he taught all his household to do the same. And his faith and fear of God was seen in concrete ways because, the verse said, he gave alms, gifts to the needy, generously. And he prayed continually. And prayer and almsgivings were considered two pillars of the Jewish faith in these days. And there's no doubt also that Cornelius was associated in some degree with the Jewish synagogue here in Caesarea because he had adopted in large measure their faith and practices. But Cornelius had not become a true Jewish proselyte, meaning he had not taken the final step of becoming a full Jewish convert, which was circumcision, and so he was still counted as being on the outside of God's covenant and God's saving blessings that God made to his people Israel. So from Israel's point of view, Cornelius, this man, even though he's a God-fearer, that's great, he's still a Gentile God-fearer, and he needs to be treated as such. He's still technically a pagan, no matter how devout he is. Well, in verse 3, Cornelius receives this vision of the angel. Look at that. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This, this is sacrificial language from the Old Testament. When God told Israel about the sacrifices that they needed to, to bring before his presence in the tabernacle, God said that, that some of the grain offerings should be burnt as a memorial offering or a memorial sacrifice. And the angel said Cornelius' prayers were like that. It was like the smoke from the sacrifice ascending, rising to heaven, or like incense of a sacrifice ascending to God. His gifts and his prayers were a pleasing aroma to God like those sacrifices were. Now this idea that Godly prayers are received by God like well-pleasing sacrifices. That has roots in the Old Testament. In Psalm 141, verse 2, David prayed, Lord, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Or Psalm 50, 14, make thanksgiving the sacrifice you offer to God. And likewise, there are two visions of the heavenly throne room in the book of Revelation 
where it says that the prayers of God's holy people rise as incense before the Lord, a pleasing aroma. And the angel told Cornelius God was receiving his prayers like that, and also his alms, his gifts to the needy. And that also resonates with other scriptures. In Philippians 4, for example, Philippians 4, 18, Paul tells the Christians in Philippi that their gifts to him while he was in need were a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What a wonderful motivation this should be to us to pray and to give, to meet needs, that that our prayers and gifts offered in Christ, God would receive them like a pleasing aroma. We think about going to God in prayer to, to ask Him for things. Do you know that your prayers can please God? God sent a messenger from heaven so Cornelius would know that. And God also wanted Cornelius to know that, that He intended to send another messenger in response to his prayers. He intended to send the apostle Peter. Look at verse 5. Now, Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Verse 6. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And and now Cornelius does just that as soon as the angel departs. Verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Well, before this search party makes it to Joppa to find Peter, we find that God has given to Peter in Joppa another vision. Cornelius had a vision of an angel. Now Peter has a vision of animals. That's the second main point. A vision of animals. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Peter was a man with a nature just like ours. The sixth hour of the day was noon. And so we read next that Peter was hungry. Verse 10, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He began to see a vision from God. Well, what's this going to be about? The man is hungry. God's going to give him a vision about eating, a big meal. Verse 11 begins to describe that vision. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The animals described in verse 12 are meant to represent all of the animals of creation. Uh, Animals, literally four-footed creatures. Reptiles, literally things that creep or crawl on the earth. And birds. And then in other scriptures, these three categories of wildlife stand in and represent all of the creatures that God has made. Verse 12 is supposed to capture the entire animal kingdom. 
And the beginning of the verse emphasized that. It said, in the sheet descending from heaven were all kinds of animals. And this all-inclusive zoo was supposed to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. The command was given, Peter, get up, kill, eat. Now, how do you expect Peter's going to respond to this? He's, he's not going to say, Lord, thank you. Wow, what a spread. Steak, pork, duck, rabbit, goat, snake. Fantastic. Now, Peter is disgusted, and it's not because he's a picky eater. Look at verse 14. Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Common meaning as opposed to being holy, unholy or unclean. Now, this is such a Peter way to respond, isn't it? By no means, Lord, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Lord, I will never deny you. Lord, stop this talk about suffering and and being killed. Far be it from you, Lord. That is never going to happen to you. He does it again in Acts 10. Lord, by no means, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. What's Peter talking about here? In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, we just read this in our Bible reading plan. God told Israel, you must distinguish between the holy and the common. And between the unclean and the clean, Leviticus 10.10. And a big part of that is distinguishing between clean and unclean animals that you could or couldn't eat, according to the laws God gave Israel. And then Leviticus chapter 11 gives us 47 heartwarming verses about which animals fall into which category. And Leviticus says unclean animals needs to be regarded by Israel as detestable. And God warns them, don't make yourselves detestable and defile yourself by failing to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the creature that can be eaten and the one that cannot. And Peter is doubly offended in verse 14, I think, or to, to use Old Testament language here, He found the offer doubly detestable because God told him to kill and eat. In Leviticus, it said you were unclean if you ate these things and you were unclean if you touched their carcasses. So you can understand why this vision scandalizes Peter. This sheet coming down from heaven like a big tablecloth were all kinds of animals, not just the clean kinds. The meal God was delivering was not kosher. Now perhaps Peter thought that this command was some kind of test. Remember like when Jesus was hungry in the wilderness and he was tempted to sin against the Lord and turn the stones into bread. So maybe Peter thought he needs to show his obedience to the Lord by detesting this order Well, if Peter thought that the command of verse 13 was unsettling, he must really have been unsettled by what heaven said next in verse 15. Verse 15, the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common or do not call unholy. What? God has made all kinds of animals clean? 
All, all kinds of animals can now be considered holy? Did Peter really hear this right? God made sure that he did hear that right by replaying the vision and repeating the same words two more times. Look at verse 16. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Three times he saw the sheet. Three times he was told, kill and eat. Three times he objected. Three times heaven replied, don't call common what God has made clean. Peter felt really confused. Verse 17 says, he was greatly perplexed in his mind. What God does is, is he tees up the timing of this vision perfectly so that in his providence, Peter is thinking, what can this mean? At the time that, that the men from Cornelius arrive and they call for him. So look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, while that was happening, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Okay, don't miss it. What's the point of these three verses? While Peter is pondering this perplexing vision, God sends the key to understanding it that the men from Caesarea come calling. And the Spirit told Peter to join this group of Gentiles. In verse 20, look at that. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now look at this. The Lord knows that Peter's confused right now. But notice he doesn't directly offer Peter an explanation. He just gives Peter orders. Go with these men. Peter is going to understand God's ways only after he first submits himself under God's rule. Now, in the Christian life, this is a principle. Often, obedience precedes understanding. That's part of what a living, personal faith looks like. Obedience goes before understanding. 2 Timothy 2.25 makes a similar point. It says repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. So our wills and our minds are not two completely separate faculties that, that don't influence each other in any way. No, people end up believing crazy things about God in part because they study and they ponder God with no real intention of submitting to Him. Now, it will not lead you anywhere good if you will demand that God must explain himself to you right now if you're confused by something. What you need to do instead is to focus on how God would have you to live right now. Peter obeyed while he was confused. And understanding followed. It does seem Peter was starting to understand the meaning of his vision of animals was tied to the reason that these men had come to him. So he asks them why they've come. In verse 21, Peter went down to the man and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, 
who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so Peter invited them in to be his guests. He gave them lodging for the night, and they're going to depart for Caesarea the next day. Now, the second half of verse 23 begins this journey, and it also begins the third and final point of our passage. We've seen a vision of an angel, a vision of animals, and now finally we'll see the truth taught by the visions. The truth taught by the visions. The Lord brings together the two men who receive the two visions to reveal this truth. Pick up in verse 23 with me in the middle. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. Okay, clearly Cornelius has not yet fully understood and embraced the worldview of the Bible. He treated Peter as if he was a heavenly messenger who had some kind of godlike quality about him. Now understand, Cornelius' mind had soaked for so long in a pagan Gentile culture who believed in multiple gods and, and demigods, and so this was just a very Gentile thing for Cornelius to do. Peter responds to it rightfully in verse 26, but Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. Peter insisted to Cornelius, I am just like you. I'm a man. We're spiritual equals. And Peter's about to learn just how true that is. Now, after Cornelius got up off the ground, the two men began to talk. Then Cornelius led Peter into his house. Cornelius has gathered a big crowd of family and friends. We read that in verse 24. In anticipation of Peter's coming, So look what happens now in verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Peter walks into the house full of Gentiles, and the first thing he tells them is, you know, I'm not supposed to be here. Verse 28, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But... God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, take the first part of that verse. Where in the Old Testament does God prohibit his people under the Old Covenant, Jews, from visiting or associating with anyone of another nation? Nowhere. You're not going to find that verse in the Bible. This was Jewish tradition that had built up on top of God's laws in the Old Testament. Now, God did command them in various ways, don't be like the pagan nations around you. Don't follow their ways. Be set apart. Be holy. Be separate. Don't make covenants with these pagan Gentile nations. Don't give your daughters to marry their sons, lest you end up worshiping their false gods. These were commands to draw moral distinctions between the ways the Gentiles lived and the ways God called his people to live. And those became twisted and added to 
in a way that led to real ethnic national prejudices. It was common for Jews in the first century to refer to Gentiles as dogs. And in that light, perhaps Peter's words in verse 26 pack a little extra punch. Get up, for I also am a man. I'm a man like you. Now, the thought of first century, first century Judaism was just, just making contact with a Gentile or, or entering a Gentile's home could make you in an unclean state before God. Now, especially taboo, understand, was accepting hospitality or sitting down at a meal from a Gentile. Guess why? Because they wouldn't distinguish between clean and unclean animals in the meals they served. And Peter gets criticized by Jewish believers in the next chapter on this point exactly. Look at verse 3 of chapter 11. You went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Why did he do that? Well, he told us in the second half of verse 28, God has shown me. God has shown me. I, have, I shouldn't call any person holy, unholy or unclean. Now, isn't that interesting? Peter didn't say... God showed me I should not call any food unclean. He didn't say, God showed me I should not call any animal unclean. Peter's not perplexed anymore. He knows what God was trying to show him. That the vision of the animals, it was about clean and unclean food, yes. But more deeply, it was about clean and unclean people. Now listen. What was the purpose of those kosher food laws all along. We're going to go there. It was a help to keep Israel set apart to God, to keep them as a distinct people who would be devoted to Him while they were in the middle of a bunch of people who weren't. What does the Old Testament say? The reason for the food laws was not about hygiene or healthy living. It was about promoting holiness. The food laws were meant to help remind Israel of their identity as a people set apart for God in the world. At the end of Leviticus 11, after God gave all those details about which animals were clean and unclean, he gives this rationale for the rules. You shall not become unclean through these animals, for I am the Lord your God, therefore you be holy, for I am holy. Don't defile yourselves with these animals, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Okay, he's saying, I gave you these dietary laws about beasts and birds to force you to always be making a distinction between clean and unclean, to train their minds to think this way. I need to be clean, not unclean, like the peoples around me. You must live in a way that's distinct from the world. I'm not going to let you eat like everyone else because you need to have a constant reminder that you cannot live like everybody else. You cannot worship like everyone else. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. You're my people, and I'm holy, and so you need to be holy too. The next time the Lord brings up the food laws in Leviticus, chapter 20, beginning in verse 23, he says, this is even more stark, you shall not walk in the customs of the other nations that I'm driving out before you. 
for which I detested them. But I have said to you, I am the Lord your God, and I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. Do not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird. I have set them apart for you to hold as unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord. I am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The food laws were a picture that he had made them his own special people. So there it is again. You make a separation between these foods because you must remember, I have separated you from the other nations to be mine. Now, the only other time that the food laws show up in the Old Testament, the same basic reasoning is offered. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2 and following. It says, you are a people holy to the Lord, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And so you shall not eat any abomination. Here are the animals you can eat. And off it goes. You see the point? Making a distinction between clean and unclean animals was supposed to help them remember the distinction between them and the nations around them, that they were the people God had chosen by his grace, had saved by his might to be his own treasured possession out of all the peoples. All right, bring that understanding of the food laws with you back to Acts 10. If you understand that, how perfect, how perfect is this? For God to send a vision to Peter at just this moment in history to show him those food laws are over. Why? Why teach Peter now that he doesn't need to observe these dietary distinctions anymore? Because the gospel's about to go out to the nations. The Jew-Gentile distinction is about to be obliterated. You don't need to separate foods anymore because I don't intend to keep you separated from the other nations anymore. You understand? I'm sending you to the nations now. I'm bringing people from all those other nations in, into my covenant, into my salvation, into my holy nation. So don't consider any other person common. Gentiles, just as much as Jews, can be part of God's holy people on earth. And I'm going to change the way that you can eat so that you'll remember that. Now it's worth wondering, when did, when did Peter learn this? He was so confused in verse 17. And then in verse 28 he says, God has shown me I'm not supposed to call any person unclean. What happened in between there? Well, we saw what happened. While he was thinking about what this vision means, God sent the men from Cornelius. And then the Spirit told him, while he's thinking about, what, I don't need to make distinctions between food anymore? The Spirit tells him, go with those men without making a distinction. That's the best way to translate the Greek. And you may have a footnote, like you do in my Bible, in verse 20, when the Spirit speaks to him. It says, go with those men without making any distinction. It's amazing. The same words are used in eleven twelve. And translated, the Spirit told me to go with him, making no distinction. I think that's when it started to click for him. God is showing me. I mean, this, this was a bombshell for Peter. God doesn't want me to make distinctions between Jew and Gentile anymore in Christ. 
Well, in verse 29, Peter finishes explaining why he had come. And then he asked Cornelius why he sent for him. And apparently, Peter needs to listen to this vision from the angel one more time before he fully understands the truth taught by these visions. So follow along, beginning in verse 29. Peter said, So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? All right, let's go over this one more time. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa, ask for Simon, who's called Peter, that's you, He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. Now, this is the third time that we've heard the details of this vision explained in this chapter, but now it's all come to fruition, hasn't it? And so this time Cornelius adds in verse 33, So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here. In the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You, you hear how everything's coming to a head right here? Here you are. Here we all are to listen to what you have to say. And there's a sense, this is a holy moment. He says, we're gathered here in the presence of God to hear what you've been commanded by God to tell us. And Peter knows what message he should proclaim. He's going to proclaim Christ to them. He's going to preach the gospel to them, and that's the next major section of the chapter. But first, Peter states the big truth, or the main takeaway that he's learned from the events of these last four days, the two visions given to the two men. And he announces it in verse 34. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that, or now I realize how true it is that. Or, I most certainly understand now that. God shows no partiality. Or as the other English Bible, older English Bibles put it, God is no respecter of persons. Now, that's not a bad way to translate the original Greek word there. Uh, it, it's a word that combines receive and person or face. God does not receive faces. Now, that sounds really strange, but it's just a carryover from an Old Testament way of talking about to lift the face of someone. So picture someone coming before a king or a ruler, and, and the person has their head bowed, and they're there to lobby the king or, or to receive their sentencing from the judge. And the imagery here is of a king or a judge lifting the face of the one who is asking for something. In a sense, to give them preferential treatment above others in an unjust way to show a petitioner favoritism as a sign they're going to be partial to them in judgment. And impartiality perhaps shown on the basis of riches or social rank or race or family ties or business ties or just because of a person's appearance because they're strong or beautiful or whatever. And Peter's saying God doesn't do that. He is impartial. He does not take a bribe. He will not pervert justice. He will not lower a standard for anyone. God is perfectly unimpressed by anything any man is or has. 
God is benefited in no way by anything any man could offer to him as if he needed anything. God is no respecter of persons. Now, very privileged people who might be used to receiving partial treatment from others better not count on receiving it from God. Job 34 says, God is righteous and mighty. He says to the king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked men. He shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. We need to remember also that the impartiality of God is a double-edged sword. And we can look at God's impartiality from two angles, just like we heard in Romans 2 earlier in the service. God's impartiality means he, he doesn't judge people according to a different standard with respect to their sins, but also with respect to their faith or good works. And that latter angle on God's impartiality is what Peter announces in verse 35. Look there. God, God shows no partiality, but, verse 35, so same truth positively stated, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Well, isn't that exactly how Cornelius was described to Peter? In verse 22, it is. He's an upright and God-fearing man. And so when God sent this kind of man to Peter, he learned definitively that anyone in any nation who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. So don't call Cornelius unclean just because he's a Gentile. God will accept him. He shows no partiality. All his ways are just, all the time, to every man in every nation. God's impartiality is really bad news for sinners who don't want to repent and hope that God's going to let them off the hook for some reason. Not a chance. God shows no partiality. On the other hand, God's impartiality is fantastic news for every sinner who repents. Maybe they fear God might not receive them or give them forgiveness for some reason, even though they're coming to Him in Christ. Not a chance. God shows no partiality. Let me implore you, turn to God. Turn from your sin Trust in Christ and what He has done for sinners and you will be accepted by God and welcomed in Christ. You will be made part of His holy people and part of His own special treasured possession in the earth. You will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. But if you will not turn to Christ, you need to know, like Peter knows, that God will not show you any special favoritism for any reason. He is impartial. And outside of Christ, you will receive just judgment for your sins. God will overlook no one's sin. And God will overlook no one's faith in Christ who died for his people's sin. Now some people, when they hear about God's impartiality, they get confused how this could possibly mesh with 
with God's grace, His sovereign grace, His electing grace. For example, was God being partial to Israel in the Old Testament? Wasn't He to choose them out of all the peoples of the earth to save them and make them His people? That's not just an Old Testament problem, if that's a problem, because the New Testament teaches God has sovereignly chosen many sinners to save from all over the world in Christ. Is this not partiality? I can't improve upon the simple wording of F.F. Bruce here. The Old Testament insists that God's choice of Israel was an act of grace, not of partiality. And we could add, the New Testament insists the same about God's determination to save us in Christ. is an act of grace, not an act of partiality. Now, some might hear that and wonder, well, is grace just a, a bible euphemism for partiality? No. Is all undeserved favor necessarily injustice? Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. We don't have a lot of time to do that. So I'm just going to make a couple of points to get you thinking in the right direction. Remember what partiality is. It is unjust discrimination in judgment based on some inappropriate, irrelevant factor to the person who's being judged or rewarded. So God gives His grace to the undeserving, yes, but His grace is not given in view of anything about the person who's receiving it, anything distinguishing about them above others around them. He does not choose to save some based on any way they are not like their neighbors. His gifts of grace come only out of the goodness of His will, and they are never given on account of anyone's race or rank or riches or relationships or appearance, etc., Now also remember, when God gives someone grace, he does not in any way set aside his perfect standard of justice to do that. Not in the slightest. It's not like God only demands that some people's sin debt has to be paid for while other people's sin debt is just waived. No. No. Everyone's sin debt must be paid. And this is the beauty of the cross, that in Christ, God forgives sinners without perverting justice and just letting some sin off the hook. No, everyone is still held to the same standard of justice. That's impartiality. Everyone is held to the same standard of justice. He doesn't have differing standards of judgment that apply to differing kinds of people. Even in his sovereign grace, he is impartial. Christ satisfied God's justice, paying for the sins of his people. But God did not lower the standard of justice for his people. Now, in closing, let me give you a few applications for Christians in light of Peter's proclamation of God's impartiality. If you know that God is impartial, you should seek to be the kind of person described in verse 35. Fear God, pursue righteousness. Now, this same apostle who said this, wrote a letter in your Bible called 1 Peter, and in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, then what? If God's impartial, then conduct yourselves with fear 
Walk in the fear of God. Throughout this time that you live as an exile on the earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. Be, be like the person described in verse 35. Also, if you know God is no respecter of persons, then you too should seek to be impartial as he is impartial. Uh, the Apostle James in chapter 2 wrote in James 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. James 2.9, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now let me warn you, you should not think too highly of yourself in this regard. And imagine that you are above the sin of partiality. This can be a subtle sin. Watch over your heart very carefully for partiality. And remember that God, the impartial judge, is the only judge who really matters. Isn't he? Well, if that's true, then learn the lesson that Peter learned. If God has called you clean in Christ, then you are clean. And if he has declared you holy in Christ, then you are holy in his sight. And you should not try and overrule God's judgment and take his gavel from him and say, you know, maybe I'm not, even though I'm trusting in Christ. Believe the gospel. Don't call unclean what God calls clean in Christ, which is you, if you're trusting him. Now finally, and perhaps most closely tied to the point of this chapter, beware of partiality in evangelism. Are there some people that you're just more likely to share the gospel with because of some reason grounded in sinful partiality? The big takeaway for Peter in light of God's impartiality was that he should freely share the gospel with all these Gentiles in Cornelius' house. And he should freely offer all of the saving blessings of the gospel to all of these Gentiles. And that's what we'll find him doing next Sunday in the next part of Acts 10. So we need to stop here for now. But, but I do earnestly hope that you are able to understand these two visions God gave and that you are able to say with Peter the same thing he said in verse 34, to say, truly, I most certainly understand. I understand now that God is no respecter of persons. Anyone in any place can be clean in Christ. God, we bow before you for your impartiality. You are glorious in your impartiality. And you are glorious in your grace. God, we confess that our thoughts about your justice are certainly too small. But God, I pray you would help us that our thoughts about our justice would not be twist uh, your justice would not be twisted and wrong help us not to ever project partiality onto you in the way that we seek to relate to you and pray and live for you god and i pray that you would conform us more into your image 
that you would help us to live in impartiality as you are impartial in our witness, even in the secret places of our heart that only you can see. God, I pray that you would comfort believers here with the declaration that they are clean in Christ because of his sacrifice. And God, for the lost in this room, I pray that you would cause them to fear you appropriately, but also to be so thrilled the good news of your indiscriminate uh, offer of the gospel and the love that you have for your people and the, the total cleanness they can have before you in Christ. So draw them to yourself. And for the glory of Christ, we ask it and we pray these things in his name. Amen.